You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. DDoS as a holiday season threat to e-commerce, a TikTok challenge spreads malware, Meta's GDPR fine, Mr. Security Answer Person John Pescatori has thoughts on phishing-resistant MFA, Joe Kerrigan describes Intel's latest efforts to thwart deepfakes, and U.S. Cyber Command describes support for Ukraine's cyber defense. From the CyberWire studios at Data Tribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Tuesday, November 29th, 2022. Good day to you all. We trust you survived Cyber Monday with your wallet and your reason intact and that you weren't drawn into an uncontrollable vortex of avaricious delirium. Or at least you didn't, you know, spend too much or get ripped off. Anyway, today, by recent tradition, is Giving Tuesday. We hope everyone takes a moment to think about donating to some good cause, and that when you do, you remember to stay safe. Now on to the news. We tend to think of cybercrime during the holidays as basically representing the threat of fraud— That it surely does, and the possibility of being scammed is rightly at the top of the online shopper's mind. But that's not the only threat out there. Fraud is a demand-side threat, but there are supply-side threats too. So, while consumers look to protect themselves from scams when shopping online during the holidays, retailers face an additional challenge. DDoS attacks intended to make their sites unavailable to customers— Bloomberg Law reports that the motives for such attacks against e-commerce sites vary. They can be anything from extortion by a gang to economic disruption by a nation-state's intelligence service. They can range from hacktivist protests to some loser out to cause trouble for the simple lulls trouble brings. While distributed denial-of-service attacks are usually of relatively short duration— Measured in minutes or at most hours and almost never lasting for days, they can nonetheless exact a significant toll from affected merchants. Online commerce is time-sensitive. If the designer galoshes you intended to buy from RunwayWellington.com can't be purchased because RunwayWellington.com is unavailable, you, e-consumer, will probably just bop on over to LeonsHouseOfRainware.com and buy him there. Unfortunately, as Bloomberg Law points out, the merchants who are victims seldom have any realistic legal recourse to DDoS attacks. 
Often, you don't know who they are or where they are, and even when you can find these things out, the perpetrators are commonly out of reach anyway. Hold up somewhere, a protective government will refuse to either extradite them or respect the ruling of a court. Better to take precautions against DDoS than to try suing the perpetrators after the fact. Have you seen the latest TikTok challenge, TikTokers? It involves asking you to pose naked using a filter called Invisible Body. But it's okay, probably even safe for work, not that we'd recommend it, because Invisible Body replaces the unclad version of you with a blurred outline. And of course, the story doesn't end there. Those of you of a certain age will remember ads in old comic books for X-ray specs, cheap and bogus glasses that supposedly would let the wearer see beneath people's clothes. It turns out the market for X-ray specs has been updated to the digital age because fraudsters are offering a filter that takes out the blurriness, just the way X-ray specs would do away with those tiresome clothes. Anywho, as you can imagine, the defilterizing filter is a scam. Not only does it not work, but it carries the WASP info-stealing malware as a payload. Researchers at security firm Checkmarks sourly observe that more than 30,000 people with nothing better to do have joined the attacker's Discord server, and it's trending. The Irish Data Protection Commission has fined Facebook's corporate parent Meta 265 million euros over a breach that affected personal information of hundreds of millions of Facebook users, the BBC reports. The case is an unusual one in that most of the data obtained and subsequently dumped on an online forum had been scraped and not hacked. The Data Protection Commission found Meta in violation of Article 25 of GDPR. The commission noted in its decision that this wasn't Facebook's first brush with unwelcome and illicit data scraping. The BBC quotes a Facebook spokesman as saying, We made changes to our systems during the time in question, including removing the ability to scrape our features in this way using phone numbers. Unauthorized data scraping is unacceptable and against our rules, and we will continue working with our peers on this industry challenge. We are reviewing this decision carefully. U.S. Cyber Command yesterday released a brief and general account that provides some additional insight into when U.S. support for Ukraine's cyber defense began and what the nature of that support was. The U.S. Cyber National Mission Force deployed a large hunt-forward team in December of last year to work with Ukraine's own cyber command. That initial deployment continued through March of this year. Despite the aggressive-sounding name, hunt-forward operations are, according to U.S. Cyber Command, defensive in nature. The hunting is conducted in the networks being defended. They say, hunt-forward operations are purely defensive activities and operations are informed by intelligence. While U.S. Cyber National Mission Force personnel are no longer physically deployed in Ukraine, continued direct support of Ukraine's cyber defenses continues. The agency says Cybercom remains committed and continues to provide support to Ukraine, other allies, and partner nations with U.S. joint forces aligned and supporting the European theater. This support included information sharing of threats and cyber insights, such as indicators of compromise and malware. For example, in July 2022, CNMF publicly disclosed novel indicators to cybersecurity industry partners 
in close collaboration with the security service of Ukraine. None of this, of course, takes away from the work Ukraine's cyber operators have done to defend their country's networks, but it does shed some additional light on why Russian cyber offensives have generally fizzled. So good hunting forward, Cyber National Mission Force. Coming up after the break, Mr. Security Answer Person John Pescatori has thoughts on phishing-resistant MFA. Joe Kerrigan describes Intel's latest efforts to thwart deepfakes. Stick around. Managing the requirements for modern security programs is increasingly challenging and time-consuming. Enter Vanta. Vanta gives you one place to centralize and scale your security program, quickly assess risk, streamline security reviews, and automate compliance for ISO 27001, SOC 2, and more. You can leverage Vanta's market-leading trust management platform to unify risk management and secure the trust of your customers. Plus, use Vanta AI to save time when completing security questionnaires. CyberWire daily listeners can get $1,000 off by going to vanta.com slash cyber. That's V-A-N-T-A dot com slash cyber. In the dynamic world of enterprise security, identity architects and IT leaders face a major challenge. Growth by repeated acquisitions multiplies the complexity of everything. Multiple IDPs, MFA providers, policy engines that all need to coexist. This can lead to fragmented user identities and policies that create security vulnerabilities and add access friction. Strata Identity solves this. Now you can decommission unneeded IDPs and consolidate the ones you'd like to keep without rewriting apps or disrupting users, engineers, and app owners. Plus, Strata's modular architecture makes it easy to integrate with any identity provider without manual maintenance and coding. Join the ranks of cybersecurity leaders using Identity Orchestration, Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your top identity security priorities, and receive a pair of complimentary AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations with over 5,000 employees. Step into a new era of identity management at strata.io slash cyberwire. Security Answer Person Mr. Security Answer Person Hi, I'm John Pescatori, Mr. Security Answer Person. Our question for today's episode comes via email. The question is, I hear folks on this podcast say that FIDO keys are better than one-time codes because even a person-in-the-middle attack will fail. Can you explain how this works? And importantly, when a person in the middle attack could still work, such as if there are misconfigurations. Thanks. Well, Mr. Security Answer Person tends to specialize in tongue-in-cheek answers to broad, lightweight questions 
So this one is a nice change of pace. Let's first set a baseline here, though. Reusable passwords are the root vulnerability for over 80% of successful breaches. Reusable passwords are a form of what-you-know authentication, just like mother's maiden name, color of first car, etc. type answers are. These approaches rely on a shared secret, or as NIST defines it, a secret used in authentication that is known to the subscriber and the verifier. That shared secret is what enables phishing to succeed. If an attacker can get between you, the subscriber, and the site you want to access, the verifier, or trick you into giving up the secret directly, the game is over. Public key-based authentication does not have a shared secret. All entities have a private key that they share with no one and a cryptographically related public key that has to be maintained at a trusted site, like a directory service or certificate authority. The elegant math behind all this allows a subscriber to be verified as long as there is a common and reliably accessible source of trustable public keys, which has been the obstacle to adoption in the past. In the old days, when the telephone was the heart of all communications, we had trustable centralized directory services, such as dialing 411 or using hard copy phone books. Cell phones and the internet broke that. There are no central directories of email addresses or cell phone numbers. Instead, silos of directories evolved, mostly Microsoft Active Directories at businesses or contact lists on cell phones or bookmarks in web browsers or email service-specific address books for individuals. Efforts in the past to agree upon standards and trusted third-party directories failed because the big IT players, if you want to see the history, search on Sun Liberty versus Microsoft Alliance Passport. And the big business players, like banks, all wanted to maintain control of user enrollment and authentication so that no one could get between them and their customers. But in recent years, the cost of successful phishing attacks has changed the economic equations for businesses and cell phone users. Cell phone users have become accustomed to strongly authenticating to their phones via fingerprint sensors and facial recognition, and on having high-value services, like banks, require the use of those text messages to phones to prevent phishing from succeeding. All of that has caused today's big IT players, namely Apple, Google, and Microsoft, to, at least for now, put down their swords and play nicely together in backing the FIDO2 WebAuthn standards for what has become known as phishing-resistant multi-factor authentication, or passkeys. Done right, passkeys can be created for logins and stored on iPhones, Android phones, and even Windows PCs, and used across a variety of services and platforms with high barriers against man-in-the-middle and other attacks. So, here's, finally, the direct answer to your question. SMS text messages for multi-factor authentication greatly raise the bar against phishing, but are still vulnerable to man-in-the-middle attacks, and bypass attacks, too. When done right, passkeys implementing FIDO2 WebAuthn standards are very secure. However, misconfigurations are still possible, and backup processes for when something goes wrong need to be in place and tested. Note above I said, when done right, we are still in the very early days of passkey implementation and adoption. As we all know, very rarely is software anywhere near trustable before version 3.0, or sometimes version 30.0. Look for many reports of vulnerabilities in early implementations. We also have to see if the major social media platforms join the standards bandwagon, and that all the IT providers avoid the temptation to vary from those standards. None of those concerns should slow anyone down from moving from reusable passwords to standard-based passkeys early and often. Seatbelts were uncomfortable at first, and airbags sometimes deployed unexpectedly early on, 
but they have saved millions of lives since those early days. If you really want to poke a stick in the eyes of the criminals, passkeys are a great stick to use. Thanks for listening. I'm John Pescatori, Mr. Security Answer Person. Mr. Security Answer Person with John Pescatori airs the last Tuesday of each month right here on the CyberWire. Send your questions for Mr. Security Answer Person to questions at thecyberwire.com. And joining me once again is Joe Kerrigan. He is from Harbor Labs and the Johns Hopkins University Information Security Institute and my co-host over on the Hacking Humans podcast. Hello, Joe. Hi, Dave. How are you? Doing well, thanks. Uh, interesting article from the folks over at VentureBeat. Uh, this is written by Sharon Goldman, and uh, it's titled, Intel Unveils Real-Time Deepfake Detector Claims 96% Accuracy Rate. What's going on here, Joe? So this is called Fake Catcher, and Intel is saying that it is the first real-time detector of deep fakes, has a 96%, just like you said, percent accuracy, Mm. Uh, but it is using something interesting. Uh, It is not looking for artifacts within uh, within the actual deep fake. Um, it's, it's working on video. Uh, it's working specifically on video. It is based on a technique called photoplethysmography. Uh, and that's a very hard word to say. So I'm just going to say PPG from now on. <laughs> right. Uh, and what PPG is, is it is a measurement of what's going on in your skin, in this case, uh, of, of the amount of blood that flows in and out of your skin. You see, every time your heart beats, the amount of blood in your in your in all your blood vessels changes, and that is right. measurable in computer vision systems. Uh, your huh. skin actually gets a little redder when that happens because there's more blood closer to the surface. You and I never see it because our eyes are not as sensitive as a computer camera is. Um, yeah, and there's uh, there's been tons of different things where you can go and look at. Uh, samples of colors that are one bit off and you can't tell the difference, but a computer can tell the difference very easily. Right. So if you, if you have something with a, with a, with a higher grain sensitivity, if you will, then you can easily detect that, that, uh, someone's heart is actually pumping. And in fact, face ID uses the same technology or something very similar to it. Um, and you and I were talking earlier. And one of the points that you made is that face ID doesn't work on a cadaver. So right, if right. you need to unlock someone's phone and they've already passed, putting their face up to it won't work because their heart is not pumping and there's no blood flow change in their face. And Yeah. And My understanding with work. face ID is that it's, in fact, it's using uh, infrared illumination, which really highlights the, you know, the blood pumping through the veins. It, it uh, I, I think it, uh, you know, it sees through that first layer of uh, skin. That's comforting. <laughs> Apple is seeing through your first layer of skin. Well, you know. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You make your sacrifices for your companies, right? Right. Um, right. They go on in this article to talk about how important it is to detect deep fakes and be able to identify them. Uh, and they talk about the history of the challenges with it. In, in 2020, there was um, a group from Google and Berkeley that showed that AI systems that were trained to distinguish between real and synthetic uh, content were susceptible to adversarial attacks. And Intel is claiming here that their 
method is less susceptible because there's no big PPG data set out there to use to build fakes that will be able to get by their detector, hmm. um, which is interesting, I think. It, uh, um, I, I, I'm, I'm hopeful about that comment, but I'm also a little skeptical about it. I think that um, – I don't think that this is something that's remarkably hard to, uh, to fake. Maybe it is. Maybe it's something that's very, very hard to fake without a large data set. Um, right. And if, if that's the case, uh, maybe there are some adversaries out there that will begin building large data sets uh, of these things or large enough data sets. So they don't have to be super large. They just need to be large enough to fool this, uh, this, this particular uh, model. And yeah. of course, what, what, what does that mean? That means, well, we're looking at another arms race situation. Right now, it looks like <laughs> Intel is in the lead. Um, right. This PPG-based uh, deepfake detector. But I, I am worried that in the future uh this will just become another part of the uh of the deep fake uh generation software yeah. that's already out yeah. there. Yeah. It strikes me that if if it's looking for a rhythmic uh, slight subtle change in the color of someone's skin tone right. that that's not a hard thing to write a filter to do automatically over any video really. Right. That, yeah. And that that's my fear. Now, maybe there's more to it that Intel's not discussing here, and yeah, which, I, yeah. which I I would almost guarantee is the case. Yeah, <laughs> They're not sure. telling you all their trade secrets in an immediate right. view, right? Um, so uh, maybe you need to uh, get on the back end and figure it out, uh, figure out what it is, run a bunch of tests and see what happens. Uh, yeah. But, you know, uh, or maybe you just need to look at a real video uh, yourself and, and start looking at the, uh, at the data sets and seeing what it is. And then maybe just, coding it. I don't know. I, I would like to think that Intel's right here. I would really, really, really like to think that. Uh, yeah. I am not as optimistic as this spoke per- spokesperson from Intel is. But <laughs> that's just me, right? Yeah. Well, it's good that they're working on this. I mean, it, it is. shows no, no, that there's... I, I think there's, this is good work. I'm not... I don't yeah. mean to disparage the work. The work is good and important work. Uh, yeah. And I think that everything we can have that can uh, authenticate media is is great. And yeah. I, I'm, I appreciate Intel doing this. All right. Well, again, uh, the work from Intel is titled Fake Catcher, uh, and uh, this article comes from the folks over at VentureBeat. Joe Kerrigan, thanks for joining us. It's my pleasure, Dave. And that's the Cyberwire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. The Cyberwire podcast is a production of N2K Networks, proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing Cyberwire team is Elliot Peltzman, Trey Hester, Brandon Karp, Eliana White, Peru Prakash, Liz Irvin, Rachel Gelfin, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Pearl Terrio, Maria Vermatsis, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Catherine Murphy, Janine Daly, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, Simone Petrella, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow. Tomorrow.